Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. If you recognize that music, well, first of all, that means you aren't on today's panel because it's uh, from the work of Kendrick Lamar, uh, which today's panel of the nose is not necessarily that cognizant of or comfortable with, but it's going to be our first topic on the show today. I mean, kind of for that reason, this week, the Pulitzers on Monday were announced and Kendrick Lamar won for music. Now, that's not just really surprising in the sense of a hip hop artist winning for music. It's surprising. It's unprecedented for really any kind of popular artist ever winning a Pulitzer Prize for music. The closest you could come might be Wynton Marsalis, but he won it for an oratorio. The only piece of music that's ever won a Pulitzer for music that you would recognize unless you're a Ned Roram fan or something, you know, Elliot Carter person, if you're just sort of a regular normal music cons- uh, consumer, would be Appalachian Spring by Copeland. Uh, one of Ives' symphonies also won. But so for, for Kendrick Lamar to win, very surprising. On the other hand, that doesn't mean that Kendrick Lamar has necessarily penetrated the consciousness of everybody. We're going to talk about that in the first segment. In the second segment, something you can relate to, um, why are restaurants no- so noisy? Why do they seem to become, they're getting noisier and noisier uh, with each passing year, it seems. And we'll talk a little bit about that. There are reasons for it and then things we should be done about it. We'll take a little break after that. uh, We'll um, do a little bit of a short pledge break. We'll come back with this terrific panel and we'll talk about Lost in Space, which has been rebooted uh, on Netflix. We'll also make some recommendations for you. And with that, it's time to introduce the panelists. Rand Richards Cooper is a uh, contributing editor at Commonweal and writes the In Our Midst column for Hartford Magazine. Carolyn Payne, actress, comedian, dancer, founder, director, and choreographer of Kinetic Dance. Irene Papoulis teaches writing at Trinity College. These are all, this is like an all-star nose panel. You guys have been like, you know, with us for uh, a pretty long time. Carolyn's like the newcomer. And how many years have you been doing this? Now? I don't know, like you know, a lot. It's all, it's like. <laughs> she's a, an old fogey and right. she's young. That's right. It's like life in a Turkish prison. It's you true. just lose track of time after a while. Um, <laughs> all right. So, um, so yeah, we are begin- going to begin with this, uh, this notion anyway that Kendrick Lamar uh, surprised the world. Uh, a five-member uh, music panel that judges the Pulitzers uh, gave him the Pulitzer for the uh, work, the, the, the album, uh, Damn. We'll hear – well, actually, this kind of was the single off of Damn way back last summer. Uh, it's called Humble. We'll hear a little bit of it right here. Your 
All right, so um, some people who have not won the Pulitzer include Bob Dylan, Paul Simon, Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, and you can actually go back. I mean, Richard Rodgers never won a Pulitzer for music. Cole Porter never won a, a Pulitzer for music. The, uh, the list of famous people who have never won a Pulitzer for music is a very, very, it's all the list of really famous American musicians uh, until Kendrick Lamar. So, but on the other hand, as we started getting ready to talk about this today, I discovered that nobody on the panel had much familiarity with Kendrick Lamar or was super comfortable talking about it. Although, Irene, you conceded that this raised an interesting question, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Why are why is it something that when we hear those first opening notes, a lot of a certain demographic um, says, oh, I don't like that kind of music, period, and doesn't want to hear any more. And those are the people that those are the people who criticize their parents for not liking rock and roll, probably, except there's also some younger people who also feel the same way. <laughs> um, and so I looked up the video and saw, you know, of of one of the songs and saw that, first of all, Don Cheadle is in it, who I love. He's one of my favorite actors. And second of all, there were 163 million plus views. And I said, why, you know, this is wrong that I'm, and also it was a really, really interesting political commentary. And so I said, wait a minute, there's, this is a problem. Yeah, I was kind of mad at myself. I have to confess, I, this is so embarrassing, but I was like, who's Kendrick Lamar? I had to, I had to Google. And then I, you know, realized like, oh, well, I've heard him, you know, in music collaborations and I've heard, heard his stuff, but I just hadn't really put together uh, who he was. And I, I like rap and hip hop music, but I think like, I kind of, I, I think I've sadly reached, this made me realize that I reached that point where you don't, it's it's harder to, you don't discover as much new music, I think, at a certain age sometimes. Like, I will, I have satellite radio in my car, and I'll listen to, like, 90s music and 2000s, and I'll, like, listen to those stations. So I kind of, you I, I feel like now I haven't stepped into, I have not stepped into this era of music, clearly, because well, I am not with it. That's interesting, too, because, you know, I think you'd also have to concede, although you haven't lived long enough to know how incredibly true this is, it's never been easier to discover new music or to discover anything you want. Right, that's words, why that's shameful, yeah. yeah I mean, <laughs> it, it's, if you got interested suddenly this week on Monday because Kendrick Lamar won for Damn, you know, if you have Spotify or Tidal or iTunes or almost anything, but certainly any kind of streaming service, immediately you can just pop it right on there and start listening to it. You don't have to walk down the street. You don't have to buy anything. You literally don't have to buy anything, and you can listen to the whole thing. Yes. The flip side of the fact that it's so easy is that paradoxically, in some ways, it becomes so hard because there's such a surfeit in so many cultural fields um, of, of possibilities mm. um, that to keep up um, in, in, you sort of have to choose your areas. I mean, there, there's an article about, uh, you, you read an article in Times, what, what new shows, what new series on Netflix are worth picking out of the Netflix stream? Mm. Um, they use some fishing metaphor. And, and then, and then you know, I'm looking at, oh, here are like these 16 new series on Netflix. So I'm trying to you know, keep up with that. We, we all define area. For instance, with the Pulitzer, Andrew Sean Greer run one for literature. I've never read. I, I, I know who Andrew Sean Greer is, but I haven't read him. You know, literature and writing is sort of my thing. Music isn't really. So it's like I got to get onto Sean Andrew Sean Greer before I get to 
Kendrick Lamar. Lamar Kendrick? Kendrick Lamar. Kendrick, Kendrick Lamar. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. We're getting but, but it. So <laughs> like Carolyn, I mean, I'm decades older uh, than Carolyn, and, and I, I sort of add one new musical input probably like every three years, mm-hmm. and it's often because it's something I hear on the Colin McEnroe show, you know, that, that I like. So, so the, the shelves are crowded. There's not much space, and certain areas are actually full and, and, and closed down. The, the other thing I want to say is what's interesting about this prize is the Pulitzer. I mean, that's the other thing we obviously have to talk about. Prizes have, have brands, and, and you know, the, the, the brand of the Pulitzer is being, is being extended, changed, remodeled, and completely reconceptualized. If you look at that list of who's won the Pulitzer for Music, as, as Colin said, you know, Aaron Copeland would be one of the most popular <laughs> figures on it. So what does it mean to take a prize, as was done with Dylan and the Nobel Prize for Literature, that has always been limited and exclusionary, and boom, you know, just take the lid off. I think, I think now anything's possible. It's a it's a way of of deliberately introducing someone into a certain kind of general popular culture that I think is a it's a really good idea. I mean, See, I think I don't, I don't agree with that, but I want to okay. hear more about what you think about that. Okay, well, I mean, I just think uh, the fact that a lot of people who would not otherwise have listened to Kendrick Lamar now will is a good idea, as opposed to sort of perpetuating the same kind of genres that we're used to listening to. Oh, or, I agree with or, that. You know? yeah. But I don't think that's why the Pulitzer's, Pulitzer people did that. There well, was you a piece, cited those criteria. Well, it, yeah, it, yeah. It, it I mean, those. well, so David Hodge, who's one of the five judges, said, first of all, the difference between Dylan and Kendrick Lamar, uh, well, there are a lot of differences, but I mean, uh, is that uh, the Nobel, they sort of go, you know what? Yeah, well, all right. You're awesome. You know, we, we figured that out. It took a few decades, but you're great. Here's your Nobel, uh, which he got in literature also, which is complicated, but there, I mean, there isn't a Nobel for him to win in music. Um, in the case of the Pulitzer Prize for Music, it is given for a specific work. It is You get it for one work that you've done. It's, it's why you know, Gershwin uh, and Jerome Kern uh, were not ever eligible for a Pulitzer because by the time the Pulitzer came into existence, Gershwin was dead. Kern had two years left in his life. You have to, even Irving Berlin was no longer doing his best work. So it's a specific work and they looked at this work, this album uh, called Damn, and said it, it hangs together in a way that, first of all, makes it a specific work the way a symphony or, or, or other set of musics, music would work. And we think it's the best thing all year. Um, and, and, and yeah, it, yeah anyway. and it speaks to the issue, at least the video that I watched. I can't even remember the, the title of the particular. That was, that was DNA. That DNA right. Yes, right. Exactly. And of police brutality and um, and frustration mm-hmm. in such a really, really important way that I think is really powerful that people should pay attention to. It's sort of like a howl of 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 anger and um, frustration and um, that I that is probably also why they chose it. All right. We're going to switch gears to the noisy restaurants. I would quickly say that if you want to try to um, sort of have a little ramp to get up onto the Kendrick Lamar thing, first of all, to, to Bimpa Butterfly, his previous CD is, I think, a little bit, or album, is a little bit more accessible. And on this one, I would reckon, recommend the songs God and Fear, both of which are softer uh, and use some found 
sound and some kind of almost prettier music, and maybe that's a easier way for people to go. All right. So, you know, Colin, one last thing: the Pulitzer is such an avatar of sort of establishmentarian success. I heard someone on the radio talking about how when Joan Baez appeared on the cover of Time magazine, you know, the, people wondered, "Oh no, is is that is that the end? Can can you still be a sort of you know transgressive, interesting, cool music artist once once the 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 such establishmentarian uh, uh, honors have been bestowed on you. Well, to that point, Kendrick Lamar, who this panel barely has any, <laughs> has any acquaintance with, has been uh, on uh, the cover of Rolling Stone three or four times, on the cover of Time magazine, and on the cover of Forbes magazine. So you're sort of wondering, wow. like, what, what, <laughs> what, what does it take to get famous these days? <laughs> um, That's a great question. So, uh, but anyway, we have to move on. Restaurants are very noisy. Quite a few years ago, my son and I went to Fatty Crab in the West Village on Hudson, which was the, at that point, it was kind of the it restaurant getting all these reviews. We sat down and we I don't think we heard a word that either one of us said to the other the entire time. It was deliberately, purposely, incredibly noisy. Uh, and uh, see, this is Carolyn's show to be an old person. She First of all, I she... I am. I apparently am like some cranky all, old person telling just, kids to get off my lawn. She's not down with Kendrick Lamar. Now she's going to complain that restaurants are too noisy. They are. It is awful. So like I, like I said, in an email, if you're a person out there dating and you go out to dinner on a dinner date and you're, especially if it's like a first date or like early on and you are trying to talk and get to know this person, you just are ending up with a headache and you're coming home hoarse. And and it makes the first date even more miserable of an right. experience he than could, it would have He could have, have told you he was an axe murderer. And, you and I wouldn't have, have heard it. it. <laughs> and we would have gone on a second date. <laughs> and it would have ended really badly for me. So well, does anybody I, I, like them? I mean, it, no, does, do, you know, do you have friends that, that say, oh, great, it's noisy, let's go? No, I would not be friends with that person. Yeah, so then how come <laughs> yeah, they're so I mean, popular? I There's... So many restaurants like I've walked into, and I'm like, oh, oh no, no, they have a live band tonight. We got to go. But it's not, it's not there's so much the live band, right? There's a decibel level of people talking, and there's a way that these restaurants are acoustically designed so that they don't do any of the things that they could just to abate that noise. And yeah, maybe there's some kind of music, some tape music in the background. Well, let's go to the restaurant critic over here. <laughs> well, I think there's a, a combination of factors, and there are some underlying structural realities. And then I. Beginning in the 1980s, especially in big cities, places like New York, that where restaurant culture is formed, you have a a, a steady upward spike in 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 uh, real estate prices, in rents, and uh, a corresponding premium on efficient use of space in the restaurant. In other words, less square footage per table. So you're there's practically the, sharing there, a table with the people next to you. There's a financial, you know, uh, imperative to obviously if you can squeeze the extra x number of tables in, you're you're going to make more money. So there is a sort of objective structural factor behind it, but there's also and everyone suspects this and I'm sure it's true because things changed. This, this I trace this to the 1980s. I have a friend who's a restaurateur and she says that it that Wolfgang Puck did it. That when he opened his restaurants in Los Angeles and elsewhere, he consciously made them loud and that restaurateurs do this in a weird way to sort of psychologically back engineer an impression of vibrant success. Uh, that, that successful places are crowded and loud. Therefore, loud places must be successful. Uh, so, so there's a sort of, you know, faulty syllogism to it. I don't know anyone, as, as you said, who likes a loud restaurant. One of the reasons that I occasionally go downtown to go to On 20 – 
the restaurant up on the top of the building. You, it's like walking into 1960. The tables sit like separate continents, you know, far apart from each other across this vast oceans of carpet. It's quiet. That you hear hushed great. conversations, <laughs> the piano tinkling in the background. You don't have to raise your voice. It's 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 just a it's just a dream of a restaurant for that because reason. Because people can have conversations. You know, yeah. how can you possibly have a conversation in a loud restaurant? You know, and then people yell into your ear and they yell really loud and they forget that you don't have to speak loudly if you're in speaking into somebody's ear. And I was just... recently out to dinner with friends and the waiter got three out of our four orders wrong because they couldn't they didn't hear what we were saying. So 1985. Look, I, I graduated from college in 1981. A few years before that. Um, you had graduates of these colleges who were just going on to whatever job they could possibly get. The country was in a recession. Suddenly in the 80s, you've got all these people going from these colleges. They're going to New York City. They're making ridiculous amounts of money for 24-year-olds. Well, these are people whose most recent social milieu was loud, crowded college parties. I mean, when you're 22, you really don't mind being in a huge party where everyone is shouting and screaming. That's your, that's your way of life. I honestly <laughs> believe that, yeah. that, that the, 80s <laughs> yeah. the 80s created this. It happened in places like New York, City, New York City, and it happened in New York City and a few other cities, and it became a template for a new restaurant ambiance in which success would be identified with the boisterous crowd. It's also expensive, by the way. Uh, my friend Dorian Puka, who, who, when he opened Treva, his first restaurant in, in West Hartford, he said it was great, but it was so loud and people were complaining. And he found out that to you know, put these uh, noise-dampening elements on the, on the, on the ceiling was going to cost a lot of money that he didn't have. Well, he went ahead and did it. And, and that's why, even though Treva is not a quiet restaurant, no. you can have a conversation, especially in the main room to the left when you go in. That's the, he, he soundproofed that one and works great. Right. That's in, this is all based somewhat, anyway, on a Vox article that we all read where they did make that point. They first of all blamed Mario Batali for coming up with the idea of having noisy restaurants uh, and, and, and having noise that approximates the noise back in the kitchen that Batali and other chefs thought they, where the people are sitting should sound kind of like the way the kitchen sounded, and they listened to loud music in the kitchen to keep themselves from falling asleep and all this kind of stuff. Um, we're going to take a break pretty soon. I want to just, one of the things that I just observed, this is not really connected to the topic exactly, but it kind of amuses me, uh, that whenever Car uh, Carolyn talks about dating, she talks about it as something that happens out there. Have you noticed that phrase? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's kind of it's I'm, awful. She, yeah. she, she, you always do that too. You know, yeah, I'm out when I'm out there. Well, like, I'm where, not going to say where I was. I know, on but a where date. is like it's out there? Like just sort of like like on sounds, a, some restaurant. It sounds like you're out with orcas. Or God forbid somebody like, took me to a movie. <laughs> but it's all this place kind of out there. <laughs> I think that phrase traces to Seinfeld. There's an episode where George's parents are separated, really? yeah. and George's mother is is dating. She says, "I'm out there," and George reacts with horror. He says. You can't be out there because <laughs> I'm out there. And if you're out there and I'm out there, <laughs> then I can't maybe, be out there. Maybe All right. that did enter the vernacular from uh, that. Yeah, okay. So that's good. We solved one problem in the whole that's A the bottom of that. And it wasn't even a problem we knew we were going to attempt to solve. All right. So we have to take a little break to raise some money. Uh, and we'd like you to do that to support the um, show. To uh, help you do that, one of our regular nose panelists, Jim Chapdelaine, wrote a song uh, to inspire you, which Kate Callahan and I learned badly with him the other day. Two, three, four. Coming up's a number you should call it. First go find your credit card or wallet. Make sure you pull over if you're driving in a car. It's perfect time to donate to WNPR. 
Yes, welcome back to the news. Uh, on the news today, Rand Cooper, Irene Papoulis, and Carolyn Payne. So, and once again, we're we're in a yet another generational chasm here, because uh, Rand, Irene, and I are all of, of an age where the original Lost in Space. Actually, you know what? Let's let's uh, let's remind ourselves what the uh, Wolfie. Let's go to B three. Uh, this is what the original Lost in Space, Carolyn, sounded like. Dad, come in, Jupiter. My sensors indicate that the pod's communication system has been effectively jammed, Will Robinson. Jammed? By what? There are more jamming potentials on this planet, Will Robinson, than can be computed by my memory banks. Never fear, Smith is here. We can find our own way to the Jupiter if we can just spot the rock your father mentioned. Dad told us to stay put. But we can save time if we meet him halfway. And then, William, you can tell him. That you were in no way to blame? Exactly. All right, Dr. Smith, I'll do my best, but I'm not promising anything. That's Billy Mooney as Will Robinson. Uh, Dr. Zachary Smith is played by uh, Jonathan Harris uh, and not the one who's running for governor right now. And um, uh, John Robinson, Will's dad, is played by a Guy Williams in that. So it was 1965 or so. Uh, the family Robinson was lost in space. The robot looked like, you know, like a reasonably intelligent, intelligent shop vac or something. Um, it's, and so we've, we've come a long ways. Uh, and we might as well uh, hear what it sounds like. Now, it's been rebooted. It's up on Netflix. Um, the only actor probably that you would recognize, unless you watch House of Cards pretty carefully, uh, would be Parker Posey, uh, who is the new Dr. Smith in a very complicated way. Anyway, here's what the new Lost in Space sounds like. We're not going anywhere until we clear this out. I'll get Judy to come down and start working on it. Wait, 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 wait. You think she's ready? What do you mean, ready? Well, after what happened, you're not worried about her? I'm worried about a lot of things. Judy's not one of them. She'll pull through. She always does. Yeah, well, maybe she'll pull through faster if we let her sit this out. I mean, you know, give her time. We don't have time, John. This part of the glacier is unstable. Yeah, I know. So is our daughter. You really think you're the best judge of what she can and can't handle? Look, I, I know you and the kids are this this team, but if I'm going to be here, you you got to let me be here. It actually is kind of 65 hokey the way that music comes in right at the end. <laughs> hey, I know you kids are this team. So that's Mom and Dad Robinson. They haven't really been getting along all that well before this space journey. Dad has been pretty much an absentee uh, action figure kind of guy uh, in the Marines. The story is also told in a very fragmented way. Uh, we sort of know what's happened to them, but through flashbacks, we find out that Earth was facing extermination by, from some kind of comet strike or something like that. I don't know how specific they actually get. Uh, people depart. Some people get stuck back on Earth. Uh, but the people who depart, they wind up in some other kind of accident. And yes, the family Robinson uh, winds up on an unknown and only partially hospitable planet. Also on that planet is a robot uh, who's sort of like, you know, it was like an orca who could only be friends with one person. Uh, it happens to be Will, young Will Robinson. Uh, Zachary Smith, as I said, is in a, a very odd way uh, transformed into the person played by uh, by Parker Posey. I don't know. What else do we need to tell them? That was a great sum summary well, so far. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So I think we told them enough then. Um, well, we should say that in that clip, what you're hearing about is Judy. So there's, there's three children in this family. Uh, Judy is the most high-functioning uh, of three pretty high-functioning kids. Uh, but she has been through an incredible trauma upon arrival in the planet where she's effectively frozen into ice in kind of a life suit while they frantically 
frantically to frantically try to chip her out when she dies before she dies. And and unlike a lot of people in these action movies, she's really she has a pretty obvious case of PTSD from it. And that's what they're talking about. All right, Irene, you you found things to like in this, so maybe you yeah. should start. Well, I like the I, I liked the psychology of that, and so the PTSD issue. Though I have to say that before that, when she was stuck in the ice, and you said, okay, this is the first episode she's gonna live, but how could she live if she's frozen in ice and they can't get to her? You know, and they drag that out and drag that out. So that kind of thing really was not for me as a viewer. Just like you know, uh, you know, just the terror and the 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 ice flows falling crashing on each other for a long drawn out time until like finally oh my god they're safe but um but there's a there's a psycho- there's a psychological complexity i might even say or interesting dynamic that they're exploring in the relationship among all the people that i found quite interesting all right well maybe we can come back to that i want to go around the table though and uh, see what else or hear what else people uh, thought i'll go to you uh, next ran well, I have a number of thoughts about it on its on its own terms, and then I have other thoughts that have to do with the nature of of the reboot and its relation to the original show. There, there, there's plenty for for me to like here. Um, I, I'm not sure that I would continue watching it on its own. We were talking about that off the air, but it's it's exciting. Um, uh, it's it's sort of heart pounding, and it seems to be one narrow escape after another, and that's that's well done. The, the family dynamic you refer to, there's eventually, although it's not much in the first episode, but eventually a kind of winningly witty dialogue appears in the margins of the catastrophes that are being barely avoided, of a sort of reckless, sar- slightly sarcastic grace under pressure uh, repartee among the family members. And, and I like that. Parker Posey is always... A great adverse neurotic character. It's an interesting role for her. She goes to a different level. It's almost a you know a sociopath. Um, Not almost. <laughs> well, she yeah. is a sociopath, yeah. and and it, it you know you forget. I mean. It's it's not really the same oily character that Jonathan Harris played in 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 uh, it was so in, enjoyably hateable uh, in, in in that role. It's it's different, and she does things of a more seriously dire. Nature. I mean, you know, killing people. He he does that too, actually. But but she um, has these moments of of pause that I think are interesting too. Yeah, you know, there's there's an inverted. I like this sort of inverted family dynamic where mom is the alpha female and dad has in some ways been relegated to to, to yeah, and he's to, saying to think the about margins. the kids, think and, about the feelings. You know, so that's good. But I guess what I would say is, first of all, the, I think the creator of this show, although he's not actually the writer director, was Neil Marshall who is a, a British or maybe Scottish a film director, and he's directed some notable horror movies, a terrific horror movie called The Descent. Any, did any of you guys see that? About a I've certainly heard of it. A group of spelunking women who get lost in a cave and trapped in a cave where ghouls are present. And in another film called Dog Soldiers about a, 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 a British Army unit that's training in Scotland and falls prey to werewolves. <laughs> I have to wonder, why is it that a director who specializes in sort of heart-pounding terror and suspense would be the appropriate creative force to redo a show that initially was a kind of campy, (laughs) tongue-in-cheek, funny satire of space exploration? And that's why later, if we get on to this, I think the reboot of the show 
really says a good deal about our zeitgeist now and I certain agree. kinds of yeah. tongue-in-cheek ta- humor that we, right. we don't like anymore. I want to talk about that. But first, Carolyn, you come to this with no generational baggage. This right. is just a show that Netflix So the out. only thing I knew about Lost in Space was that there's the catchphrase, Danger Will Robinson. That's pretty much all I knew about this going into it. So, And I'm not—sci-fi is my least favorite genre. So already, like, there were two strikes against this. And, um, I mean— I suffered through and did my duty and watched three episodes. I would not, <laughs> I would not, unless I was being paid or threatened, watch any more of this. And I, so when I saw Parker Posey, when, you know, the, the first scene where you see her, I was like, oh, maybe things are looking up. And I, I'm a huge Parker Posey fan. I think she is a fascinating actress and comedian. And even she couldn't sell this to me. And I do think, like, she's, she, has, she was given a really fascinating character. But I, I felt like this was not, for, for some reason, she's not, um, she couldn't even, like, latch me into this. And I, I kind of felt that way with all the characters. Like, I, and e- even the robot feels, like, cold to me. But I think that's very – I mean, I think that that goes back to the moment we're in. So I think in 1965 it was possible to imagine a friendly robot who would be our pet, you know, which is what the robot kind of is. You know, this is a little bit more – this robot, uh, once again, it, it bonds for complicated reasons with the little boy, uh, Will Robinson. Uh, and it's not necessarily clear – and even Will Robinson mentions this, that, that the robot wouldn't hurt somebody else. He know, Will knows the robot won't hurt him, but he didn't really know anything about this robot. Robot. And I do think, Irene, this particular thing is meant to plug into our current anxieties uh, about robotics <laughs> and about artificial intelligence. I mean, we don't yeah. see robots right now as creatures that are going to go fetch our shoes and pipe. Uh, robots are th- things that well, like that m- scene where the robot locks him, locks Will yeah. in yeah. in the room, right? You know, and and even because the robot, it's it's established that the robot does whatever Will says. Like at one point, like Will almost has this robot just walk off a cliff. Right. Uh, and and then, but this robot locks him in the room, and he can't even. You know, and is it to save him or is it not to save? Right. Him? I yeah. think it is to save well, him. Robots I, yeah. are one man dog. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I think um, part of the the link to our time is the idea of moral ambiguity, and um, and that's to to that extent, I think there's a sort of. Uh, uh, mixed message in terms of who the audience is for this, you know, because in a way it's uh, um, a show that I wish I could have watched with my son when he was like eight or ten years old and it's like a great adventure and all that. But then there's, but he was really, would have been really disturbed, I think, by the moral ambiguity, you know, like not knowing the good guys from the bad guys and, but that's our time. We don't really know the good guys from the bad guys and you can't trust anyone and so that's why even the Parker Posey, she's she's completely a bad guy, but then she has these flashes and what's going on with that? And, you know, uh, so to that extent, I think there there's like this anxiety, level of anxiety, like you can't be sure that really seems like part of our zeitgeist. Can, can I uh, just seize on a key word that both you, Colin and Irene mentioned, that, and that is anxiety. You said that the, the robot uh, in the current one, plugs into our anxiety about, you know, artificial intelligence and so on. The, the one thing that the old show and many shows of 1965 of this kind were definitely not designed to do was to plug into our anxiety mm-hmm. about anything. And uh, Mike Hale, the television critic in The Times, uh, writing about the show, referred to the original as a, a scary monster camp fest that started out as a sort of earnest uh, science exploration clunker and then as it found its proper gear, morphed into this scary monster camp fest. 
And um, the remake is, is anything but, but campy. There is more, my wife grew up watching uh, uh, the original one, and she watched the first episode of this, and she basically spent the whole hour saying, no, no. Um, <laughs> in the very first episode, you think about the sort of angst and anxiety-producing things that happen to people. There's more angst in one show than there was in the entire X number of years of the original. People are crushed. They're drowned to death. They're trapped in tight spaces. They're frozen to death. They're like attacked a broken by leg eels. in the first three minutes. Broken yeah. legs that has to be then surgically yeah. repaired by the child of the person whose leg yeah, it is. Who happens to know how uh, to do that. People are dropped <laughs> yeah. off. Right. People are dropped <laughs> off cliffs. Um, the also, the chicken, by the time yeah. the chicken entered in the second episode, I became fixated on the chicken. Yeah, there is an actual live chicken. She's yeah. So, so my <laughs> question about what we're doing, and I would say the same thing is true about, for instance, no, very notably Batman. The original Batman show was just a pure exercise in yeah. pure camp. Now, look at Batman now. It's so dire. And I would also say the same is true for James Bond. A lot of people like Daniel Craig. I think Daniel Craig is a good James Bond. But James Bond now, today, is not the same sort of winking. These, these, these productions no longer wink at us. Uh, they use uh, awesome special... They're on our anxiety. Yeah, like, yeah. Well, and, and, and then like, you know, James Bond now, Daniel Craig's in he's just, he's just a ruthless killer. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, would, I would amplify that and say, so I've been struggling a little bit with the Parker Posey character uh, playing uh, Dr. Zachary Smith. She steals somebody's jacket very early in the film. We just found out that it's actually Billy Moomy is the actor who's, who's plays like basically a dead guy that she takes the jacket from to change her identity. You know, and so Carolyn, the original Lost in Space, this character well, let me just quickly tell a very, very fast story. So I'm I'm in the studio next door when this is years ago, one day, and the building starts to shake, and it's clear we're having an earthquake. <laughs> and Kyone is there in the booth, and I've got a guest in the room whose eyes are like the size of saucers, and there's other people around, and I'm thinking, well, you know, there's only like three minutes left in the show. You know, what should I do? Or like three, there's like three or four minutes left in the show. And the one thing that was popping through my head is I cannot be Dr. Zachary Smith in this situation. Because Dr. Zachary Smith would say, Kayoon, stay at the board. I must go. <laughs> <laughs> and then run out of the building. <laughs> and he was kind of this comically, I mean, in addition to being kind of a sociopath, he was a real coward. You don't really see yeah. cowards as much anymore. And cowards aren't funny anymore. Right. They're the guys who don't run into Parkland to save the kids. And Sociopaths get you killed. And that's our view of them these days. There's nothing funny about that. Um, these are the people that you really have to worry about because we've, we've gotten smarter about identifying the cowards and the sociopaths in our lives who will get us killed. Except in, we're in a really noisy restaurant on a date with one of them. In which and you just don't no know. Idea. You didn't hear them. <laughs> you never picked up on it. Yeah, I mean, I, somebody is tweeting at us, Irene, that this, what this thing needs is humor. And there's banter, right? But there's not humor. There wasn't enough. Yeah. But no, fundamentally, no. It, it's designed to have your heart pounding and racing. The old Lost in Space was designed way, to have you chuckling. Yeah, but it also, the pacing, it was like heart racing, but also slow. Yes. So it That's was... True. <laughs> that is true. I, I agree. I agree. There's a, definitely a pacing problem. It, well, it, anyways, the reboot of Lost in Space, we're, we're going to take a break here uh, uh, pretty soon. I guess we don't 100. The one thing, I have to mention one other thing about this, which is I think the other anxiety or something that is there in this movie is, is kind of there's, I mean, the mother is kind of a tiger mom. She's like a non-Asian tiger mom who's like forced her kids in, to these incredible levels of, achieve, of achievement. Will Robinson at one point says that he had tested into a geology program <laughs> or something. <laughs> there's, this movie is very much about like how to get your kids into Ivy League schools, uh, <laughs> except that the Ivy League school turns out to be this incredibly hostile planet. Anyway, we have to take a break. Uh, we'll come back. We'll make some recommendations.
show was, can you, can you even hear me? Today's show was produced at first by Jonathan McPants. No, no, I didn't ask you to dance. Uh, anyway, he, he went to Colorado, so uh, Betsy Kaplan. No, I, I don't want to order an Etsy captain. Betsy Kaplan! Amanda Fish was... No, I'm not the waitress. You, you can't order fish from me. The part of Bill Curry was played by Frank Ocean. What? Okay, if Frankenstein was what you heard, that's fine. On Monday's show, the scramble is... You know what? Never mind. All right, so uh, those were the credits. That was Kayon. We're back we're, we're with our panel, uh, Rand Cooper, Irene Mapoulos, Carolyn Payne. Uh, we're going to make some recommendations. Uh, Carolyn, why don't you go first? Um, okay, so last weekend I saw Age of Innocence at Hartford Stage, mm-hmm. and uh, I I really I really liked it a lot. I mean, it's just it's very like lush, and it is kind of it's a nice uh, it's a nice evening of escapism. Like if you don't want to have things tapping into your anxiety, this is a a good one to see. So I would recommend that. All right. I wouldn't. I wasn't expecting it. Edith uh, Wharton. Uh, I know. I I did not go to it willingly. I will add, but I did like it. So you go to so many things unwillingly. Willingly, yes. Um, yeah. I really just want to sit home and watch Real Housewives of New York. Right. And <laughs> this is the person who does like the Sharknado marathons. I uh, live for Shark that, Week. That's where, she, that's, where, <laughs> that's where her heart lies. All right, Irene Papoulos, um, what do you have for us? I have, apropos of nothing we've been talking about, if you're interested in North Korea and what's what's going on, I read this article in the New York Review of Books. It's easily uh, available online called Jaw Jaw Better Than War War by Jessica T. Matthews. And for somebody who is interested in the news but doesn't know much about what exactly the details are about the countries surrounding North Korea and their attitudes toward the towards the U.S., it's a really good article. Also, there's this incredible organist named Christopher Houlihan. You wouldn't think, I wouldn't think of organ music as something that I would love, but he's a, an incredibly bright star of an organ player. He's from Connecticut. He went to Trinity. He went to Juilliard. He made it big as an organist, and now he's giving a concert at Trinity tonight at 7.30 with Bach and Schumann. And if you like that kind of thing, he just is the best organist you're ever going to see in your life. Or here in your life. Doesn't he like host a show on public radio, too? Not, not that I know of, but he might. I, I don't he know. He does. I think he does. Anyway, wow. Christopher Houlihan uh, at Trinity tonight. Is that where he is? At Trinity tonight at 730 in the uh, chapel. It might be exactly what you need to lift your spirits instead of tapping into your anxieties. <laughs> what, are, what are you going to tap into, Rand? Food. Okay. I have two uh, culinary recommendations. One is a restaurant recommendation. Um, by the way, starting in June, I'm going to be reviewing restaurants. Uh, I used to do that for the Times, as you know, but now I'll be doing it for Hartford Magazine. And the first uh, restaurant I'm, I'm going to review is Bistro on Main in Manchester. And it's right in the Main Street of Manchester. It's uh, a, a terrific neighborhood bistro, I will say. It's very loud uh, mm. uh, on a weekend. <laughs> but on a weeknight, it's not loud. And if you go, I actually have two dishes to recommend. It's a terrific bouillabaisse. And there's also a, a lamb tagine that is just, just great. So that's Bistro on Main in Manchester. The other thing is May 12th. Um, at uh, the Connecticut Forum is doing a chef forum, and it's hosted by Sam Sipton, who's the excellent uh, food editor of the New York Times. And it's going to feature Tom Colicchio, who you probably know from watching Iron Chef. He, he used to be the Gramercy Park, uh, the chef who opened Gramercy Park, and then went on to the Kraft Steak restaurants. Uh, and also uh, Gabrielle Hamilton of the uh, restaurant in the East Village called Prune, which is a terrific, cozy, lovely little restaurant. And the third, I think, is David Chang, the 
Momofuku of Momofuku fame, um, and so that that for anyone interested in restaurants and the lives of chefs, and uh, th- that should be a great evening. Connecticut Forum, May twelfth. Uh, I'm pretty sure, with help from Wilfie, that I was confusing Christopher Houlihan with Christopher O'Reilly. Uh, but I'm still not 100 percent sure. Um, all right, so um, that all sounds great. Uh, Connecticut Forum. I was lucky enough to host the one with Anthony Bourdain and Alice Waters and Duff Goldman, my panelists. At one point, there was a big bowl of fruit uh, out there on the stage, and they started throwing fruit at each other, which I consider to be kind of an accomplishment as a host, <laughs> as a moderator. Um, I'm going to recommend uh, that people check out online. Uh, Time does this the most influential people of 2018, uh, and it's up there right now. And what they have, what they do is they, I mean, this is a no, time-worn practice, but they have one famous person write about another famous person. Uh, and they're very short. Um, so you actually have Rosie O'Donnell writing about Roseanne Barr. Think about that. Um, and, and, but writing approvingly about Roseanne Barr. Uh, Barack Obama writes about, uh, by name, Emma Gonzalez and I think three or four of the other Parkland uh, activists. Uh, Chris Borland, he's a former uh, NFL football player for the 49ers who quit after like one fabulous year because he was worried about his brain, uh, writes about Anne McKee, who is the researcher who's done the most um, significant research about uh, chronic uh, encephalopathy in football players. Uh, Lupita Nyong'o writes about Trevor Noah and so forth and so on. So it's it's nicely done and these little write-ups are, are, are easy to get through. And there's a lot of people, it kind of gets back to the Kendrick Lamar thing, which is that a lot of the people in this uh, in these um, 100 influential Americans are people that you don't know. Uh, I guess the people in the world. I can't remember whether it's Americans or the world. But uh, they're people that you don't know, names you might not recognize. Um, If you read all of them, you'd have a pretty good handle, I think, on what's going on in culture and politics and science and stuff like that. If you read all of them, it's a nice roundup. I am going to end with... um, I'm going to recommend something for the third time on this show, and then I'm going to give up. But um, I think like a lot of things on television these days and a lot of things in culture, Bill Curry is always complaining about this. It's all based on comic books. It's all science fiction, which Carolyn's not crazy about. There's so much stuff out there that's about that, you know, fantasy stuff that used to be the province of children. And I like a lot of that stuff. But every once in a while you find something that isn't like that. And there was a series, I think it was originally on the Sundance channel, but it migrated to Netflix. The four seasons are archived there. It's called Rectify. Uh, It is about a man who was wrongfully imprisoned uh, and gets out after 19 years uh, and tries to rejoin his family. It is, I just think it's one of the maybe six or seven best things I've ever seen on television. I slowly kind of doled out the last few episodes to myself because I didn't want it to end. One of the last things that happens is the family, part of the family packs up a tire shop that the family is out. I was weeping at the packing up of this tire shop, which you wouldn't think would be a particularly emotional experience. You know, it's just that thing, that human scale drama that we're we're not doing that well or, or as well as we used to. So I do recommend that. It's not zany, it's not crazy, it's quiet, it's thoughtful, uh, and it's has some pretty important stuff in it too. So rectify. This will be my last time urging people to watch this. Thanks so much to everybody who helped out here today, uh, especially uh, Betsy Kaplan, who took over the producing, Wolfie on the board, and of course, Carolyn Payne, Irene Papoulis, and Rand Cooper. Oh,